FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. Hello and welcome to this Passionate About Food and Drink podcast from the Food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF and I'm joined today by my boss and my friend Ian Wright. Hello Ian. Hello Tim. So I want to begin today where we left off last time, two weeks ago. Uh, Today is the 28th of January. Uh, We're nearly a month beyond the end of the transition period in terms of our trade with the EU and we're not seeing uh, massive disruption at the borders. We're not seeing huge queues of lorries like we saw in December, although that was for different reasons. Um, At the same time, though, I know that many of our members and people across the food and drink industry are reporting issues, problems, friction with their trade with the EU. What's your current assessment as to, A, what is the level of friction? Uh, B, is it growing or diminishing? And and see, I suppose, that distinction between things which can be solved over time and things which are just structural and will have to be adapted to. Well, I think I think you're right that it's not evident that there is major disruption at the border. And at the moment, there isn't any obvious impact on food supply. But I think that there is a fairly significant disruption to the operation of our members and to many, many food companies. And it's unseen because most of it at the moment relates to exports. So the products that that would normally be exported to the EU are not going uh, over the borders in any, in in many cases, in in anything like the quantities that they normally would. And we're having some extraordinary statistics reported to us. So let me give you just a couple in one case, one of our members, a very large member, send, used to send before the 31st of December, would send a regular consignment of mixed product. Uh, some of it originally shipped into the UK from uh, the EU and then the, that, that, broke that group of products or that import broken up and then some resent to other parts of the EU from the UK, but also some product manufactured in the UK. Uh, that consignment, which went three days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I think, would normally have taken, uh, it would normally have taken about three hours to prepare the paperwork for that consignment. That member, uh, the last time I heard, it had taken five days and they still hadn't finished it. Second example, uh, another member, completely separate, different member, sending a product to Northern Ireland, three SKUs, stockkeeping units, three variants of the product being sent, 40 pieces of paper to be completed. And uh, a further uh, business, completely separate from the first two, this time a business sending um, what are essentially ingredients to the EU. 50 different consignments have gone on different lorries. Only three of them reached the EU without some form of disruption. um, And none of them reached the EU in the normal 24 hour period. So that's three separate businesses of massively different sizes, all significantly impacted by the restrictions. But the restrictions and the new checks and the new paperwork only so far affects exports. And so the, the pain is not being felt uh, by the UK shopper or the UK consumer. So just to stick then with exports for the moment, kind of to my early point, there's 
there's presumably some things which are genuinely teething problems there people don't know how to fill out the forms and they will learn how to fill out the forms or border officials aren't clear on the rules and that will become clear those things will get resolved some of those things are about i guess companies may need to invest in more people to help with their trade work so they're, they're going to have to recruit people there'll be a cost and a time in order to kind of uh, align to the new rules and then the third category are the things that are as i say just sort of structural they're, they're a consequence of the deal that will not change what's your sense as to what the balance between those three things is of the problems that are being reported to you now well i think first of all it's fair to say that there are some problems which are those of interpretation by eu officials so we've been we've got one example where ice cream is being treated as a composite product by the Republic of Ireland officials but not by French officials. We have other examples where Italian officials require one set of uh, forms and Dutch officials for the same product require different forms. And so those sorts of inconsistencies are I suspect things that the commission will iron out very quickly because after all, it is rightly very proud of the single market. Uh, that's the single market the one British minister referred to me as their single market, and I had to point out to him that it was actually Mrs Thatcher's greatest creation, the European single market. And she'd certainly be spinning in her grave if she knew that we had, uh, we had left her greatest single legacy to the world. Arthur but the, So I think, uh, sorry? Arthur Cofield. Arthur Cofield, Lord Cofield. Lord Cofield, formerly the chief executive of the Boots Company, uh, 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 the man who was uh, commissioner who created the single market. Absolutely. Um, the second, so those 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 inconsistencies will undoubtedly be very speedily, I think, ironed out by the EU. The second question, though, is what what does the government actually mean by teething troubles? And, and I, think, I think this is quite an important philosophical point. It's not simply a presentational uh, swerve by the Prime Minister, although it is definitely a, a presentational swerve as well. So he wants to give the impression that this will all be resolved and that these are teething problems and that, as with teething problems, eventually the teeth will come through, the pain will stop and, uh, and things will revert to normal. Actually, though, the teething troubles uh, metaphor is a bit darker, I think. I think the first point is that with teething troubles, it's very rare indeed for the baby to die. But what we are seeing is that some of the, some of the um, burdens placed by these new checks are actually stopping businesses operate. So that is at the root of the problem with uh, Scottish seafood. That the government, uh, the government this week has announced compensation for Scottish seafood producers. But the simple truth is that it's the checks that are the problem. And the checks and the uh, implications that those bring cannot be changed because they are in the agreement. And I think when the government actually talks about teething troubles, it isn't talking about, it, it's taken as meaning teething troubles of the process. And uh, those like, and I was thinking this actually, and that's why I got so cross about the, the, the metaphor. But actually what the government really means is that these are teething troubles of the UK's new status as an independent coastal state, as a third country. And we will have to get over them, is what the government is actually saying, because the gains of having our sovereignty back 
are greater than the loss of prosperity, income, profit, and in several cases, business existence, that will be the price that businesses will pay. I'm not sure that at this stage, the UK food and drink industry and indeed the UK population has quite worked that out. And of course, so long as it's only exports that are affected, they won't. But the thing is going to change in April and then in July when the, when our own import uh, checks and controls come into place. And at that point, I think we will see a certain degree of mayhem as imports of, of many products, but specifically of food and drink, begin to be quite severely impacted. So let's talk a little more about that point. Um, very broadly speaking, at the moment, the government is waving through imports at the UK border. Um, that was a deliberate strategy they took to prioritise flow. And that obviously seems to be working at the moment. But it was always the intention, as you say, that the UK border would be reimposed in a phased way, uh, first on the 1st of April and then on the 1st of July in two stages. There are other staging points in this process as well. Uh, the grace period that applies um, for those exporting from Great Britain to Northern Ireland uh, also expires at the end of March. And we also now know that, um, not related to Brexit, but with pretty terrible timing, uh, the EU is thinking of changing its rules for certain products imported from all third countries, now of course including the UK, and that's due to come into effect, uh, I think, later on in April. So, your sense, it sounds like, is that uh, there is quite a lot more trouble uh, coming down the line. Ah, there's trouble afoot, I think. Um, I do think there is, uh, there's a whole world of pain still to come, actually. I mean, I just spent an hour with one of our largest members, with uh, Dominic Goody and Luke Heindlau, trying to get to the bottom of some of their concerns. And it wasn't a short list. And as we sat and discussed this with a, a number of their team, what became clear to me was that those problems are going to get worse after the 1st of April as the UK checks come into, into a view. And then much worse when the EU on the 23rd, 24th of April, as it's currently planned, changes its uh, overall approach to uh, imported products that require some kind of check because they are of animal origin. So, for example, if, if the current proposals remain in place, from that point in April, you're going to need an export health certificate for a rice pudding, uh, whether it's in a tin, whether it's in a container or whether it's frozen. And um, the, the scope of the, of the list of products that are going to be, require uh, export health certificates and therefore VET certificates are legion or is legion. And I think uh, that may be the moment when... Um, British government officials, or rather British government ministers, realise that, that actually the damage that's being inflicted on the UK food industry and its capacity to export is, is really quite significant. Could you imagine that the government's response to that might be to extend the, the decision to prioritise flow, to push back the introduction of the UK SPS border for imports? Yeah, I think it's perfectly possible that the government will waive um, import restrictions and import uh, checks for a longer period. And it would be sensible to do so. I wouldn't criticise that decision at all. Indeed, I don't criticise any of these decisions. 
I just wish they were a bit more open about saying, instead of saying it's teething troubles, I wish they'd just say, look, you voted for Brexit. This is how it is. These are inevitable. These are all part of a deal that we consciously signed up to uh, as a government because we prioritise our sovereignty over our ability to export and you have to get used to it. But, you know, that kind of clarity and that kind of single-minded, direct, um, hard truth veracity is not something that is, comes easily to this generation of politicians. Okay, just one more on this issue. I mean, we, we touched on it slightly already, this uh, introduction of new checks for composite products imported into the EU from third countries, which is due to come into effect in April, and as you say, could add to uh, already existing issues. It seems to me that this this has the potential to to cast the, the post-Brexit period in which we hoped we had at least moved on from the sort of tribal arguments about the, the in-principle nature of that decision, um, that it kind of ca- it brings us those issues back into focus, and, and particularly as we speak, while there's a, a really rather unpleasant strain of, of vaccine nationalism going on uh, vis-a-vis the EU and the UK, how concerned are you that um, relationships between the UK and the EU could become really rather more difficult over the next few weeks? Well, I don't think... I don't think they're particularly easy at the moment. I mean, I don't think there's much goodwill on either side, to be honest. The EU is remains very bruised about the fact that the, the UK has chosen to leave the single market and the customs union, and I think is perplexed that the UK the UK government should sort of slightly take the view that 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 they're isn't a price to be paid for this, at least isn't prepared to take that view in public. Um, I think UK government ministers uh, are more sort of share that level of of difficulty with it, trying to understand why the EU doesn't understand that we voted for Brexit and therefore the consequence, we, we take that with the consequences. And I think that leaves one particular group of people in a very precarious situation. I mean, that's um, uh, that's the people of Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland is in the customs union, but not in the EU. It's in the single market, but also in the UK. And so there's dual jurisdiction, in effect. And I think that is going to become a very, although it's a potentially a massive advantage for the people of Northern Ireland, I mean... If they can get it, if we can get it right, then you, you'd be bonkers not to base your business in Northern Ireland because you can turn right for the EU via the Republic and left for the UK via Stranraer. And I, ju- I think that's a fantastic position long term for Northern Ireland. But it's going to be very tricky to get through the next few months without there be, it being the subject of very, very, very significant arguments. And and if I were the UK government, having seen the poll in the Sunday Times last weekend about how many people in Northern Ireland feel British and how many people feel Irish, and behind that figure, uh, perhaps a less reliable figure about how people would vote in a border poll, I think I'd be quite worried because I, I make this prediction. It is not possible that there won't be a border poll in Northern Ireland if there is a border poll in Scotland. They will happen on the same day. Uh, It cannot be avoided, in my view, um, because, and I've said this on this podcast before, I don't think it's widely understood that while the decision to give 
the Scottish Parliament or to give Scotland a second referendum is entirely political. The decision about whether there's a border poll is entirely judicial. Uh, the, the Good Friday Agreement uh, includes clauses about how a border poll will be triggered. And although the Secretary of State has the right to uh, initially adjudicate as to whether the settled will of the Irish people is in question, Northern Irish people is in question, um, if his or her decision is not one that is favoured by one or other side, they can go to court and the High Court in, North, in Belfast will eventually decide against a very clear set of criteria whether they think the border poll should or shouldn't happen. And so it's not in the gift of politicians at the end to make that decision. And I think that's something that hasn't been widely understood. And it does, because of that, make it extremely unsettling that we could be having a right old Barney between the UK and the EU, particularly about regulation in Northern Ireland as it relates to food uh, and other things over the next few months. I think that is, is not helpful. Okay, so uh, we've talked briefly about COVID and um, I just wondered if you could, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're still in that extraordinary sort of period of, on the one hand, terrible news about um, death rates exceeding, uh, deaths exceeding 100,000 and very high case rates on the one hand, and yet uh, excellent progress on vaccination and evidence of case rates starting to at least level off and hospitalizations perhaps starting to come down, that kind of mixture of, of good and bad news at the moment. I wondered if you could give us a, a quick update on uh, the idea of mass testing in food and drink manufacturing and where, to, where we've got to on that. Uh, we're we're, um, we're still, I think, just at the start of mass testing amongst uh, food and drink manufacturers. But we are beginning to see it roll out. I think there are probably more than 90 businesses now doing mass testing through the government programme and a number of others. Our, our, our internal survey of members, which we do every couple of weeks, tells us that a third, a further third of members are also doing their own testing. And I think the two strands, the government testing and the, uh, and the private testing, will begin to come together over the next few weeks. I think the, uh, the rollout is proving, for those who have done it or are doing it, is proving very helpful. Um, and I understand the reluctance of, of some people not to uh, introduce test to introduce testing and not to do so. I mean, it, it, but the truth is, it it kind of reveals things that you really need to know. So, if you're running a factory, you really do need to know whether your people are or aren't COVID positive. You do need to know whether you've got asymptomatic people in the factory, and you need to be able to ask them to go home and self isolate. And you do need to know uh, what your what your level of infection is because once you know you can control it and bring it down and so i think i think this is a very worthwhile um enterprise uh it does have a cost it does have a cost both in terms of money although the tests themselves are free until the end of march and i suspect with a bit of pressure that that can be extended even further if if lockdown arrangements are still in place uh i think uh, it does have a cost in terms of some disruption it clearly has a cost if, if colleagues have to be asked to go home because they need to self-isolate. But the value of it is far greater. And one of the things that we, we've we been able to do in the last uh, 24 hours, actually, is reach an agreement with uh, the temp agency, Reed, who will provide uh, skilled and trained personnel to manage the testing for you uh, at the, whatever scale you need, If you are, depending on the size of your factory. 
at a rate that we've managed to negotiate with them that is lower than their current commercial rate. So if you if you want to do mass testing, of course you can do that with your own people, but it does mean you're deploying staff who might otherwise be doing something else productive. Whereas if you come to us, we can put you in touch with the Reed business uh, partners in, in your location who will be able to provide you with trained staff to manage uh, the whole testing rollout and, and everyday uh, use of it uh, at whatever point you need it. So I think I would strongly encourage everybody who's listening to this to, to really seriously consider the rollout. And we're now just about moving. There is a, there is a, uh, a threshold, I think, of about 50 people per, per shift, I think, is below which government's at the moment a bit reluctant to do this. But I think we will be able to help you with that as well. If, if you want to do it and you haven't got the scale at which the government, which currently the DHSC is thinking about this, please come to us because I think we can find ways of making them, of getting them to agree to do it. And in some cases, they will they will simply give you the tests and you can find a way of doing them at home or whatever if that's easier. But I think the best thing is to come to us. Caroline Kian in our team uh, is running this, and we will uh, we can put you in touch with Caroline who uh, can make all the, help you make all the arrangements. Thank you for that. That's great. So I just wanted to end with a couple of bits of really good news. The first is that FDF has come together with the National Skills Academy for Food and Drink to offer 400 young people uh, proper work experience through the Kickstart scheme. I wonder if you want to say a little bit about that. Yes, it's a great uh, initiative and I'm, I'm very proud of this. It's taken us a bit of time to get this bid together because Kickstart, a bit like we were just saying about the number of people who can be tested in um, for COVID, Kickstart is, uh, has its thresholds and uh, it wasn't possible for many uh, FDF members to apply direct Kickstart for uh, for the scheme, but we were able to put together a kind of consortium bid. And this is going to have a great impact on the ability of young people and, and people to get into the food and drink workforce. And I'm very grateful to all those businesses who have joined us in the bid. And I think it's a very exciting initiative because Kickstart looks like it's going to be a, a great success. Uh, and so I think if you're if you have the opportunity to be part of it, I think it's going to be a, a, an initiative which will bear a lot of fruit for the industry in the weeks to come. That's it for today. Just uh, two things to tell you about that are happening next week on Wednesday, the 3rd of February. Uh, there's our regular fortnightly issues update webinar for members. Go to the website and you will find the way to register. And also on the 3rd of February that evening is our FDF Awards, a virtual ceremony. It's still uh, open for registration. Do join us. It's always a great celebration of absolutely the best and the brightest in our industry and it lifts our spirits which is something we all need at a time like this thank you ian thank you for joining us today thank you for listening and we will see you again fdf awards one of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of february for details of this and other fdf events including our online convention visit our website fdf.org.uk fdf passionate about food and drink.